has come and gone. December 27th. Back to normal life. The presents have been unwrapped. The post-Christmas sales, as evidenced by the newspaper yesterday, are underway. Christmas cards are beginning to come off the refrigerator. The trees and the decorations are starting to come down. The gifts are already to start, starting to lose some of their original excitement. The radio stations are starting to change their tunes. Extended family is starting to return home. It's back to normal life. Is that really what December 25th was all about? Gifts, food, holiday sales, traffic jams, eggnog, caroling, Santa Claus, trees, snow. Or is there something more? Yes, there is something more, because Christmas is not first of all about any of those things. Christmas is all about destruction. You heard me correctly. Christmas is all about destruction. Christmas is all about God's activity to destroy something. Charles Dickens, the author of The Christmas Carol, written in 1843, records that at the first sound of God rest ye merry, gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, Ebenezer Scrooge grew furious and caused the singers to flee in terror. That song speaks of Christmas as a mission of destruction. We sang it this morning. Let me remind you of the two verses. God rest ye merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Fear not then, said the angel, let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. Christmas is a mission to destroy the works of the devil. For more on this, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. That's the text we'll be reading and that's the text I'll be preaching this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1022. 1022. 1 John chapter 3. Now before I read verses 1 through 10, I want to remind us of something. And that's this. Satan is alive and well in the world today. And what I'm getting ready to do is assault his kingdom. He's in this room, and maybe not him, but he has a host who fell with him that are radically opposed to you hearing the truth of God's Word today. He doesn't like to be brought out in the open and talked about like this. He would much prefer to be ignored and be allowed to kind of do his quiet work in your heart. But I refuse to do that this morning. I refuse to do that out of love for you and out of love for Christ. Here's what I'm desiring to do. I'm desiring to preach and expose him this morning. Expose his works. Expose what he's trying to do in humanity. So that you will come to the knowledge of the truth and be set free from his snare. But I know that only God can do that. Only God can come and so grip us this morning that Satan and his works and effects and those who are in legion with him have absolutely no effect in this room. So that's why I want to pray right now at the very beginning of this sermon. Pray that God will help us, that he will guard us, that he will keep us, and that as a result of that, he will allow us to receive the truth. So let's pray. Father, you've taught us well in your word to not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. You've told us what he's like, what he does, that he masquerades himself as an angel of light, that he does not like to be necessarily publicly displayed and known, that he would rather do his quiet work in all of our hearts, keeping us away from the knowledge of the truth, keeping us blind, keeping us distracted, keeping us in error, keeping us foggy in our thinking or uncertain, or having this sermon come off as unclear and unhelpful having this sermon sound weird, having this sermon sound so unreal and so untrue in light of the world that we live in. And such a reaction to a sermon like this would be total evidence that we are in his snare. 
that we have been taken captive to do His will, that we are blind, and that all around us we think is real, but behind that, behind all that we see, is reality. This is a blip this morning. This hour is a blip of reality in a sea of unreality. So we pray that this morning that you would, as Christ has done, bind Satan. Free us from his activity. We pray that you would keep him from the hearts and minds of all of us. We pray that you would say to him, like you said to to Job, this far and no further, that you will not permit him to have any sway in this room whatsoever, but that you, by the power of your Spirit, will grip our minds and our hearts and arrest us with this truth. Some of us this morning have been rescued gloriously. Those who are born of God, the evil one cannot touch him. And we rejoice this morning in the truth of 1 John 5.18 that those who have been born of God, the devil has no ultimate claim over them anymore. They have been... They have, the Son of Man has come and bound the strong man and plundered his house. And we're so thankful that that has taken place. But others of us in this room are in the, the case of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. We are in the snare of the devil. They are in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And the only hope, God, is that you would grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we plead with you this morning to please do that. Please do that. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now let's read 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Our text this morning is verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is God's invasion of this sin-cursed earth in order to rescue a people who are in the clutches of Satan. Now, before I get into that, let me just explain to you why John the Apostle wrote this letter. Okay? Perhaps what John was encountering, we don't know this for certain, but this seems to be the, the, the tenor of the letter, is that there have been a group of professing Christians that have separated from the true church. And they have come to believe things that John says are of the devil, that are not true, that are heretical, that are contrary to the Bible. And as a result of that, they have been looking at these real Christians and saying they aren't real Christians. And John is writing to the true Christians and saying, look, I want to let you know what true Christianity is. I want to give you assurance as to what you believe. And in this particular text, he's saying he's comparing who the children of God and who the children of the devil are. And he's saying those people who say that they know everything, but yet they live in a, in a pattern of sin and disobedience to God, they cannot claim to be true Christians. They are of the devil. 
Rather, you who seek to practice righteousness, who seek to walk with God faithfully, looking only to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are the true church. So that's kind of the general context in which John is writing here as he speaks into this situation to these people who are distressed and worried about whether or not they are genuine. And in the midst of writing that, Paul reminds these Christians of the reason the Son of God appeared. Now my theme, like I said, is that verse. My, the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I want to unpack that theme. I want to unpack that verse with five separate questions. Here are the five questions. I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we're going to move through them and answer them one at a time. Here's the first question. Who appeared? Who appeared? Number two, why did he appear? Number three, what are the works of the devil? Number four, how did his appearing destroy them? And what does all this have to do with my life? That's what I want to do this morning. So let's start with the question, who appeared? And under this big question, I want to answer two smaller questions. Number one, who's the Son of God? And what does it mean that He appeared? Okay, so let's look at verse 8 again. Second part. The reason the Son of God appeared. That's where I want to start. The reason the Son of God appeared. Now, verse 8 tells us that it was the Son of God who appeared. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, who the Son of God is. Let's look there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in that person, in Him, And he, that person, abides in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that's not the only place. There are five other times in this letter that John tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I won't read them all. I'll just give you the verses. 1-3, 1-7, 3-23, 5-5, and 5-20. All of those tell us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So when we hear the Son of God appeared, we need to think Jesus Christ because that's who John is telling us the Son of God is. Now, who is Jesus Christ besides the Son of God? What does it mean that He's the Son of God? Well, if you ask the culture who is Jesus Christ, you are going to get quite a different message than the Bible. And I would like to introduce you to our cultural elite and their opinion of who Jesus Christ is. Ask a Jehovah's Witness, who is Jesus Christ? They will tell you, quote, Jesus was merely Michael, the archangel, a created being who became man. Ask a Mormon. They will tell you, Jesus was not God, but rather only a man who became one of many gods, a polygamist and half-brother of Lucifer. Ask a Unitarian, Universalist. They will tell you, Jesus was simply a great man to be respected for his teachings on love, healing, justice, and unity. Ask New Age guru Deepak Chopra, New York Times best-selling New Age author, I see Christ, quote, as a state of consciousness we all can aspire to. Ask a Mason like Levi Downing, quote, Jesus underwent seven degrees of initiation in Egypt with the seventh degree making him the Christ. Ask a Buddhist, Jesus was not God, he was an enlightened man. Ask Hindu leader Mahatma Gandhi, I cannot ascribe exclusive divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. Ask a Muslim, Jesus was merely a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Ask President Thomas Jefferson, quote, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the Son of God. That was something we did for him. Ask Prince Philip. Quote, Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Ask Fidel Castro, communist dictator of Cuba. I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and between those that sustain that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. Ask Mikhail Gorbachev, Soviet leader. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Ask Malcolm X. Christ wasn't black. He wasn't white. The poor, brainwashed African has been made to believe that Christ was white to maneuver him into worshiping white men. A white virgin, white angels, white everything, but a black devil, of course. 
ask Martin Luther King Jr. Jesus Christ was an extremist of love, truth, and goodness. Ask American existential psychologist Rollo May, quote, Christ is the therapist for all humanity. Ask Lakota Native American tribe, Jesus is, quote, the buffalo calf of God. If you go to the world to get your portrait of Jesus, you will not find a consistent answer. But if you go to the Bible to find your portrait of Jesus, who, by the way, has a better track record than any of those guys, or females, if I quoted any, they, have, they speak with unison. One unified voice. A couple of years ago, Pastor Ted preached through this letter, 1 John. Some of you may remember that. hope you do. 1 John. And while he was preaching through that series, I made a little paragraph of who Jesus is in this letter of 1 John. And I just want to give you that brief paragraph. This is Jesus Christ according to the Apostle John, who's whom, whom we want to know who Jesus Christ is. Here's what John says. He is the true God and eternal life. 520, and I'll just be giving you the verses. He's the true God and eternal life, 520, who has come in the flesh, chapter 4, verse 2, being made manifest among us, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world, chapter 4, verse 14, as a demonstration of God's love for us, chapter 4, verse 16, appearing to destroy the works of the devil, chapter 3, verse 8, since the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, chapter 5, verse 19, by becoming the propitiation for our sins, chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 10, thereby cleansing us from all sin through faith in Him, chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 5, verse 4, and becoming our righteous advocate with the Father, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we may have confidence in the day of judgment, chapter 4, verse 17, because God has given us eternal life in His Son. Chapter 5, verse 11. And whoever has the Son has life. Chapter 5, verse 12. Has received the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 24. And aids in the Son and lives in the Son and in the Father. Chapter 2, verse 24 and chapter 3, verse 24. That is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we have His identity. According to John, Jesus Christ, the man born in Jerusalem, in a manger, to the Virgin Mary, who worked in his father's Joseph's carpentry shop until he was 30, a public ministry of three years, preaching, teaching, healing people, only to be arrested, sentenced, and executed on a Roman cross between two thieves, and three days later, as he said he would do, rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven, where he presently rules and reigns over all the nations in all of his post-resurrection glory, where he is gathering right now a legion of followers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Burundi, that no man can number. He's doing it mostly silently, quietly, one person at a time, He's commanding all people everywhere from His throne in heaven through His prophets, both in Scripture and those little p prophet preachers and other Christians, calling them to repent of their sin, to come to Him, to follow Him, because He will come again. And He will drive a sword through everyone who has not followed Him as Lord. And He will, as it says in the book of Revelation, gladly and eagerly receive into heaven all those who have humbly and imperfectly walked with Him by faith, and He will dwell with them forever. Martin Luther offers the following advice. You should point to the whole man, Jesus Christ, and say, that is God. He gives us good advice. And that is who appeared on Christmas morning. Now, what does it mean that He appeared? Well, the word appear here in our text, the reason the Son of God appeared, can literally mean to uncover, to lay open what was veiled, to manifest what had before been unknown. This implies something. This implies that when Jesus showed up in that manger, He already existed. He was appearing. He was being uncovered. He was being unveiled. He was being disclosed. He was being made manifest. This means that when the Son of God appeared, He already existed. When the Christ was born 
the angels didn't appear to the shepherds and say, got some news to tell you. We don't know what's going on here. Some baby, something going... They appeared with an announcement as if this was, they knew this was coming. And Simeon, in Luke chapter 1, also knew that it was coming. He had been awaiting this. And many other faithful Jews had been waiting for the, his arrival. He had been prophesied of in the Old Testament, spoken. Isaiah chapter 9 spoke of this child that was going to be born, of a virgin. Isaiah 53 prophesied of this servant who would come and suffer for the sins of his people. Micah chapter 5 prophesied that this man would be born in Bethlehem. All this was ringing in the ears of the faithful. But what I want you to get from this, that he appeared, is not that it, it's not that he appeared so that he could give us good advice. He didn't appear so that we would just have it, some good advice. He appeared so that there could be a declaration, an announcement made. Michael Horton explains the difference between advice and announcement. Listen to this. The heart of most religions... Most religions in the world is good advice. It's good techniques, good programs, good ideas, good support systems. These drive us deeper into ourselves to find our inner light, our inner goodness, our inner voice, our inner resources. Nothing new can be found here. There is no inner rescue deep down in our souls. I just hear echoes of my own voice, Horton says, telling me all sorts of crazy things to numb my sense of fear, anxiety, and boredom, the origins of which I cannot truly identify. But the heart of Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. It comes not as a task for us to fulfill, a mission for us to accomplish, a game plan for us to follow with the help of life coaches, but as a report that someone else has already fulfilled, accomplished, followed, and achieved everything for us. That's what I'm doing this morning. I'm making an announcement. I am not interested in giving any sort of advice. All I'm doing is standing with the angels back at Christmas Day saying... Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth among men on whom His favor rests. For there is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is born for you, Christ the Lord. That's what I'm here to do. I hope you hear it as that, because that's what it is. This is a this is a declaration. This is not one little nice little tidbit of information that's good to tack onto our lives. This is everything. If this is what it says it is, this is. Everything. For this is God coming down and speaking a word that He had not spoken for 400 years. Number two, and I promise we are going to move faster now. Number two, why did He appear? The Son of God appeared. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. Now more on that in a minute, but let me just talk very briefly about who the devil is and what in the world is mean by destroying. Because He's not destroyed that we know of. I mean, he is destroyed, but he's not destroyed. And I'll explain the difference in a minute. He's, he's not dead and gone. So who's the devil? Well, according to this letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he is the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He is also known as the god of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Now, in our age, Satan is caricatured. He is the figure at the Halloween party who wears the red suit, has cloven hooves, got horns on him, carries a trident, appears on ACDC album covers. That's who the devil is. He's caricatured. He's got to be offended at that because he is far, far, far more sophisticated than that. In Scripture, the term Satan means adversary, enemy. We know him as the devil. He's a high angelic creature who rebelled against God. He's called the prince of darkness, the father of lies, the accuser, the serpent. He appears as an angel of light. He has millions of people in league with him without them even knowing it. And he prefers it that way. He has the clever ability to manifest, manifest himself under the appearance of good, 
He's subtle and crafty. He's a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He and the work of his demons is ultimately behind every false religion in the world. He is the God who is worshipped in Islam, in Buddhism, in Zoroastrianism, in Unitarian Universalism, and postmodernism. And if you don't subscribe to the religion, you worship him too. Jesus came to destroy him. Now, what does it mean to destroy? To destroy means to abolish or bring something to an end. Literally, the word means to loose, to release. This world does not belong to him. This world belongs to God. God made it. God made it good. God intends to redeem it. And right now, ever since God put it under a curse because of our sin in the beginning, which we'll look at in a minute, God is now intervening in this world through the person of Jesus Christ to release the clutches of the devil from off the lives of people, to destroy his work, to destroy his efforts in the language of Revelation 1, to free us from our sins by His blood. Now, here's question number three. What are the works of the devil? What is he doing? Well, to understand that, let's go back. Hold your place in 1 John. We'll be back there in a minute. But let's go to Genesis chapter 3. First book of the Bible, page 5 or 6 for most of us. Genesis chapter 3. And here's where he shows up at first. Now, verse 8 of 1 John chapter 3 tells us that the one who practices sin is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So it's appropriate now that we go back to the beginning and see where he began his sinning. Now, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God has already explained that he's created man. He created man good. He's created this beautiful world. He created man and woman to be together, to subdue the earth. What ultimately, God, what ultimate, God's ultimate agenda was this. He'd create man and woman. They would have babies who would be God worshippers. And eventually, from the Garden of Eden all the way out to the entire world, it would be filled with worshippers of God. And that this earth would be a theater. When God would look down at the earth, He would see it radiating praise to Himself. That was His intention from the very, very beginning. It didn't take long before that plan was foiled. And it happened right here in Genesis chapter 3. We've got to get that because that's God's purpose right from the beginning. And that's going to be His purpose at the end. He has not given up. He has not given up on this world. He's not going to blow it away and start a new one. He is going to redeem this creation. And He is going to put to death the serpent, and all those who are in league with him, so that his initial creation intention will be fulfilled when Christ returns. Now the serpent was more crafty, verse 1, chapter 3, than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths the beginning of the end for God's original creation this is the work of the devil this is an illustration of what he's doing what he did at the very beginning he has to work a lot less hard at it now do you know why? because we are already born with the disposition he desires we are born in, in, with a sinful disposition that we have inherited from this event Adam and Eve, being plunged into sin. Now, as a result of being born, we have a sinful inclination to choose sin. So therefore, all he has to do is come alongside us and coach us. He doesn't have to draw us out and get us to do something we don't want to do. He gets us to do exactly what we want. Now, 
the, from the very beginning, the devil was trying to get our first parents, Adam and Eve, to sin. So when people commit sin, it's the work of the devil. It is the work of the devil to tempt people to sin, and when they sin, his work is accomplished. Now, why is he so concerned about sin? Because sin brings us legitimately under his claims. If he can get us to sin, if he can get us to disobey God, then he has a right now to go to God and say, they will come to hell with me because they have disobeyed you. You cannot rightly forgive them. You are the judge of all the earth. You are the righteous one. You have revealed yourself to be holy. You cannot let them into heaven. That is his work, to get as many in league with him as possible. Now, what is he doing here? What is his, let's, let's analyze his work a little bit. First of all, he's lying to Adam and Eve, and he's lying to them about God's attitude to them. The first thing that Satan desires to do in the life of any human being is to get them to doubt that God really loves and cares for them. That's one of his big goals. If he can get you to doubt that God is on your side or is interested in your best interest, he knows you won't follow him. So that's one of his desires. He's asking, do you really think that God loves you? Do you really think you matter to him at all? Don't you remember him saying things like, you're dust? Don't you remember him saying things like, the nations are a drop in the bucket and care about you? you know, does it really matter to him? That's one way. Another lie is about the law that he places on us as his creatures. God made the garden. He made man and woman to, to care for it, to subdue it, to rule it. And he also put rules on them. And Satan comes in here and says, you realize what he's trying to do, right? A real God who loves you wouldn't tell you to do anything. A real God who loves you wouldn't put rules on you. A real God who loves... You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to make you his slave. He's just treating you like a slave. You want to be a slave all your life? You want to be free. Don't do what they tell you to do. Be free. Be self-governing. Follow your heart. Do what you want. He also lies about the consequences of sin. You won't surely die. I mean, this whole thing about Christian preachers standing up talking about Jesus Christ coming back, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Will you just leave here and go get something to eat, please? Stop it. It's, it's a, is he wasting his breath? He lies about the consequences of sin. It's not going to happen to you. You're better than all those other people. Look at them. Don't, don't worry about it. Everything's going to work out fine. All you need is love. So he's, he's, he's working quietly and subtly. And the, most of the people in the world, if you ask them, will give you his worldview. They will give you the answers that he wants you to give. He wants them to give, proving they are exactly in league with him. They won't... I remember watching a DVD series once, and they were interviewing a bunch of Satanists. And Satanists really hate that title. They're, they even say that. This one young guy said, it's like, I wish they'd stop calling us worshipers of the devil. All we do is worship ourselves. You see what he's done? That's it. That's all he wants. He doesn't want to be high profile. He doesn't want people who are in allegiance to him walking around wearing black with eyeshadow with piercings. He wants people walking around wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. I'm serious. He doesn't want to be noticed. He prefers it that way. He just doesn't want to be noticed. He would prefer just to be standing on the side of the stage and seeing people give themselves over without even him having to do anything. It's like, let's work for me. They're taking care of it themselves. 
Now, I think the context of John, turn back there, we're, we're done with Genesis 3 for the time being, come back over to 1 John. The context of John also helps us understand what the works of the devil are. Um, verses 1 to 4 help us. Let's look at those again briefly. 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The devil's against that. He wants to keep people from becoming a love child of God. Look at verse 1, or verse 1, second part. The reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now, this is talking about Christians. The reason the world doesn't know Christians, doesn't recognize Christians, doesn't, doesn't see in Christians anything to be commended is because they don't know God. And he would prefer that you not look different from the world. He would prefer that you blend in. He would prefer that you go with the flow. He's also committed to keep you from seeing God and being like God. Notice verse 3, the desire of the Christian. is Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. So he wants to keep you from seeing God, keep you from being like God, keep you from hoping in God, keeping you from pursuing righteousness and purity. And to summarize it, he wants to keep you, in the language of verse 4, practicing sin. Now that needs to be explained because sin is widely misunderstood in our day. What is sin? What does it mean that the devil wants to get you to sin? Well, just think back to Genesis 3. He wants to get you to do what God doesn't want you to do and to keep you from doing the things that God wants you to do. Simple. Don't do the things that God wants you to do. Do the things that God doesn't want you to do. And when you do it, believe that it's not a big deal. And when you don't do it, believe that it's even more not a big deal. Verse 4 describes sin as lawlessness. Lawlessness is living without reference to God's law. Most of us, I would say, do not worry, do not think much about sin in relationship to God's law, at least if we're not Christians. Christians think about that stuff. But the law of God is given so that we will understand what the moral will and requirements of God are. And a lot of non-Christians or people who aren't believers who don't follow Jesus will say, I, I, I don't sin. I don't even know what God's laws are. And that's the point. You can sin against God by not knowing what God requires of you. That's why he gave it a book about it. So we can, we can sin against God by neglecting to know and ignoring that's typically the way that most people sin. Don't pe most people don't wake up and say, God said, don't murder. Man, got to go kill somebody today. Can't wait. No. They're not just outwardly just wanting to break commandments left and right. What's God told me not to do so I can go break it? No, most people are just, just ignore it. Just don't concern yourself with it. Just neglect it. Just live in rebellion against God without knowing it. If Satan can keep you looking and living like everyone else, doing what you want to do with little or no thought to God and His ways, he succeeded in you in keeping you out of heaven and bringing you to hell. If he can just keep you in line, keep you in line with what the world is telling you, because it's his system, and the things that you're hearing on the radio and through media that he's pumping through his servants, he wants to get into your ears and get into your belief system and get into your values, which will eventually get it into your actions. And here's the deal. Jesus came to destroy that work. He came to get people out of the clutches of Satan. And this was prophesied way back at the beginning in Genesis 3. Because after this sin happened with Adam and Eve, God comes, He shows up, and then He pronounces a curse on the serpent, and he pronounces a curse on Adam and Eve. And then he makes this promise in 3.15. He says that there will come a day when the seed of a woman, when a child to be born, will come and crush the head of the serpent and will cause a division in humanity. There will be a new humanity that will worship, love, treasure, Jesus, Christ, God. And there will be another humanity that will serve the devil. And he's going to come and make a division between those people. And that's what happened at the birth of Christ. It's the invasion of the Genesis 3.15 promise. Way back in the beginning, the promise is being fulfilled now to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. Now quickly, question number four. How did the Son of God destroy the works of the devil? 
because the birth wasn't enough. Being born doesn't do it. It gets the mission started. Notice verse 5. Verse 5, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that He appeared... This is talking about Jesus. There's the word appeared again. You know that He appeared to take away sins. Now, if you link up verse 8 and verse 5, you see that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to take away sins. I take those two phrases as synonymous. Basically, saying it this way, the Son of Man, the reason the Son of God appeared was to take away sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Sin. He came to do something about sin. But here's the question, how? Well, First John teaches us that it happens two ways. Number one, he takes away our sins externally. That is, Jesus does something for us that we can't do ourselves. Okay? That is, he lives a perfectly obedient life, which we have not done. He dies a wrath-removing death. God is angry with human sin. And he has pledged himself to punish it. And he will punish it. He will see that all accounts are settled in the end. All accounts will read zero in the balance of God's judgment book. It will be either, okay, this person trusted in Christ... I absorbed their, he absorbed their debt, account zero for sin, positive, 100% righteousness. Christ lived for them, Christ died for them. His death removed their sin, his life gave them all the righteousness they need for me to accept them. That's offered to you this morning. The second is, this person has sinned a great debt against me. I made them to fill the earth with my glory. People were supposed to look at them and worship me. No one worshiped me because of them. That's a, that's a de- that, that is a debt to God's glory. You're made for that. People walk around believing they're good other, even though they've utterly failed for the reason they were made. I'm basically good even though I haven't got, given God glory. I haven't trusted Him. I haven't walked with Him. I haven't showed His worth to people. I haven't pointed to His greatness and said, would you see Him? I haven't done that with my life. I've wasted my life. I've wanted people to worship me and honor me and praise me. That The reason I'm made is to draw attention to God. And I haven't drawn anybody's attention to God. They don't see anything of God in me. If you're feeling that way and you walked in this room this morning and you're saying, whoa, I've blown it. That's a good, good feeling to have. That's really good. I've been there. I'm there a lot still. Even though God is making me more what I ought to be. So anyway, we see this huge debt that this person has to their sin. And they've got no righteousness. And that's why the devil can come over and point to these people and say, See, they're not going in there. They haven't lived according to your didn't you say in Romans 14.23 that whatever is not from faith is sin? Which means everything they did, not having faith in Jesus Christ, was sin, even though it looked great? This is why everything we do before we become Christians is sin. Everything. Everything. It's not that you just sin sometimes as a non-Christian, as someone who isn't trusting Jesus, isn't following Jesus. It's that you sin all the time. Because in your heart, in your soul, there is not a desire, a longing, a trust, a faith, a looking to God, a hoping in God. It's God's just not on the screen. And that's the essence of sin. That's what makes sin so awful. So anyway, Jesus takes our place. He suffers in our place for our sins. That's what He does to take it away. So for those who trust in Him, who have their sin debt paid, who have their righteousness filled, Satan looks over there and says, Why don't they come? And God just opens the book. 100% righteousness, 0% sin because of my son right there. 
and Satan shuts his mouth and has no claim. And Paul teaches us to act, act that way as Christians. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? There's no charge that can be brought to our account. I can stand here right now as a justified sinner, as someone who has experienced the grace of God, and say, Satan, get off my life. You have no claim on me. You have no place in me. My sin debt is paid. And now, also, my sin love is destroyed. And that's the second. I already said the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, one, by paying for the guilt of them. He pays, for the, he pays the price for them. But then secondly, He frees us on the inside from our love of sin and enables us to not sin as a lifestyle. That's what He does to destroy the works of the devil in our life. Notice verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So the Son of Man comes, Son of God comes to destroy the works of the devil, and one of the ways He does that is to get people to stop sinning as a pattern of life. In other words, they don't just live lawlessly. They don't neglect God anymore. They're not perfect. They're not without sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10 teach us that if we say we don't have sin, we're not even Christians. So we have sin, but sin does not have us. We are not ruled and dominated by God neglect anymore. We are not ruled and dominated by living as though God never told us anything to do. We're concerned about what God would have us to do. We want to obey God. And that love for God that replaces a love for sin is the work of Jesus Christ in destroying the work of the devil. Now let me make two applications at this point. Number one, if Jesus has not freed a person from their love of sin, He has not freed them from the guilt of their sin. Now that needs to be said in our day because we have a lot of people living in this very area because this Owensboro is gripped by nominalism. Nominalism means they walked an aisle one time, they prayed a prayer, they, they, they were baptized as a kid, but their life is utterly committed to living the way they want to live with zero reference to God, and they think that because some preacher told them one time that they're going to go to heaven because they got baptized. That is false. It is false. It's a lie. It's satanic. And God have mercy on pastors who tell you that. Here's the deal. When, when this happens, these people think that God can free somebody from the guilt of their sins and not free him from the love of sin. And that means that they are living a life that 1 John 3, 9 says they cannot live if they are born of God. So being born of God, I'm born again. I'm being, I've been born of God. But yet, you have not been freed from the power of of sin. And I'm not saying you don't sin. I'm saying you don't love it. It grieves you. You hate it. You wish it were taken away now. That's the attitude of a Christian when he sins. Please, God, forgive me. Take it away. I hate it. If you go on living your life like you want to live with no reference to God, claiming that Jesus has paid for your sins, He has not. He has not forgiven you. He has not taken away your sins. Matthew one twenty one. You shall call His name Jesus. Why do we call Him Jesus? Because He will save His people from their sins. That not only means saving them from the guilt of their sins, that means saving them from the power of sin and ultimately from the presence of it. Because He is one day going to make us like Him, as 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says. But let me... Do the reverse now. If Jesus has freed you from the love of sin, if you do hate it, if you do fight against it, if it does trouble you, if you are presently, right now, making war against it in your life, it is because He has freed you from the guilt of your sins. And they are gone. 
they will never meet you in the day of judgment. You have been cleansed completely. The evidence of cleansing, total cleansing, is not perfection. The evidence of total cleansing is warfare on sin. That's the evidence that a person has been totally cleansed. Not that they don't sin anymore, but that they fight it like crazy. And they are dead serious about it in their lives, and they don't play games with it. That's a person who has been... I mean, could you, could you imagine a person claiming to be free from sin's power? A person who's said, the Son of God has destroyed me! That's what a person says when they, they claim to be a Christian. The Son of God has invaded my life. Your life has to look like God has hit you in order for anybody to claim to be a Christian. It has to look like, whoa, this person is look weird. They have been hit by something. You know who hit them? God hit them. That's who hit them. So God, Jesus destroyed them. Blessed destruction. It's gracious destruction. We need to be destroyed. And Jesus... So if you walked in here thinking, little baby, peasant, walking... Jesus is a destroyer. He is not some little baby. He, he, he praised God that he was a baby. He needed to be a baby. But he came as a baby on a mission of destruction. Now, let me close. What does all this have to do with my life? Well, I feel like you, you should feel that it has everything to do. But this does. It's the most important issue we'll ever deal with. If you walked in this room with cancer, you had a worse problem if you walked in this room as a non-Christian. If you have cancer right now and you walk in this room and you've never trusted Christ, cancer may have been God's gift to you to get you in this room so that you would hear this message. According to this text, all of our problems are infinitely small compared to this. Boys and girls, did you get, not get what you wanted for Christmas? Didn't get everything you want? You got bigger problems. This is what Christmas is all about. You need Jesus Christ to come into your life powerfully. To change you and to save you. The, the question that this test, text is asking us is, are we a child of God or are we a child of the devil? You saw those were the two groups, right, in verse 10? Children of the devil, children of God. So that's kind of mean to call somebody a child of the devil. Well, Jesus called people children of the devil in John 8. So Jesus is not who we painted him to be either. He called religious people children of the devil. Because they thought that by obeying the law or by being born in the family of the Jews that they were somehow right with God. And he said, you don't obey God. You just claim that you're part of this family and so that God must love you when you don't love me. If anyone loved me, he would have God as his father. God would be his father if you loved me. You would know that God were your father if you loved me. Here's how we know who the children of the devil are and who the children of God are. Everyone who receives the Son and loves the Son is a child of God. Everyone who receives the, uh, doesn't receive me and doesn't, doesn't love me is of the devil. You're rejecting me. What does that say about you? That's what Jesus said in John 8. You reject me because you are, your father's the devil. Now, let me, let's do a little test, okay? Are you a child of God or child of the devil? And I'm going to try to answer this from the text. Children of God. So I want, you to, I want everybody to be evaluated. Eva- we're in a process of evaluation now. We want to think through this. We want to be honest before the Word of God. We don't want to let any deception or looking over at other people. I want God right now to focus in on you and you to ask these very specific questions of yourself and be thinking, does that fit me or does that fit me? Children of God over here. Children of the devil over here. Let me give you some criteria. Children of God. Relate to God as a loving Father. They love to be loved by God. That is the greatest privilege of their lives. They love it that God loves them. They don't take it for granted. They see it as unbelievable mercy that God should love them. They love to be loved by God. That's where, that, that's a, you meet a person who loves the fact that God loves them, 
who really loves it, you've met a child of God. Children of the devil, neglect God. God's love is not that big a deal, and it certainly didn't cost all that much because He loves everybody. And you don't think about it very often. It doesn't thrill your heart to know that God loves you. Children of God, pray to Him as a father. They don't pray to Him to get some sort of merit with Him. God, you'll hear me, you'll do this for me. They pray to Him because they love Him and He loves them. Children of the devil, they pray to Him. But basically, if they pray to Him, to get Him to do what they want Him to do. To manipulate Him. God doesn't like that. Children of God, seek His counsel through prayer. God, what would you have me to do with this decision, with this relationship, with this person, with this job? What do you want? Children of the devil, don't seek His counsel about anything. Children of God, fight sin. And as a pattern of life, if you look at their pattern, I'm not saying you look at them at one little moment, because if you look at them at one, all Christians at one moment or another look like children of the devil. At a moment. When we are sinning against God, when we are getting angry, when we are getting lustful, when we are getting covetous, when we, all those things, that's, that looks like the devil. And that still remains in us to some degree. That sin, that presence of sin. But, we, if you look at the pattern, you look at the year, look at the month, look at the week, what's the pattern of life there? Is it righteousness? Children of God. Is it unrighteousness? Devil. You look over at the children of God. They're set apart from the unbelieving world. Look over at the children of the devil. They look like everybody else. They talk like everybody else. Children of God, they want to be like God. They want to be with God. Children of the devil would prefer to be what they want to be, follow their own way, and God is boring. Children of the devil, or children of God, hope in God and in His promises and are presently striving to walk in purity with Him. Children of the devil, hope in themselves or a false religion, put off becoming a Christian until they get cancer at 75, which rarely happens, and are presently striving to make a lot of money so they can buy a lot of stuff for themselves or work really hard to get a career in which other people can tell them they're great or who presently mooch off their parents because they'd rather play video games than work or look at porn rather than get married while drinking a lot of cheap beer and watching a lot of television. Children of God recognize the presence of sin in their lives and talk to Jesus about it a lot. They trust in Him completely to pay the debt for their sin that they owe to God. Children of the devil think they don't sin very much. Even when they do, it's not murder, so it can't be that bad. They compare themselves to others to justify themselves about how good they are and hope that God will accept them because even though they're not utterly failing at fulfilling the purpose, even though they are utterly failing at fulfilling the purpose for which God created them, they believe deep down in their hearts they're a good person. Children of God have been born twice and love God's ways. Children of the devil have been born once and love their way. Children of God love other Christians because they love God and love people that love God. Children of the devil see Christians as the consummate party pooper and Bible thumper and who just won't shut up about Jesus and it makes them feel bad when they cuss. So who's your father? If you're a child of God, see what manner of love the Father has given to you. If you're a child of the devil, you don't have to be. You do not have to be. Say, what do I have to do to get out of his clutches? Let me say this. If you want out right now, already evidence that you can get out. If you don't desire to be out, that's scary. If you desire to be out, say, I'm done with this. I am done with this. I thought the whole time that living for myself was actually living for myself. I thought there was like a third option. That like there's a Christian option and then there's like the weird devil option and I'm kind of over here in the middle. 
Neutral ground is devil territory. I hope you've gotten that this morning. Neutral ground is devil territory. He who is not for us, Jesus said, is against us. Are you for Jesus? Are you with Jesus? Are you claiming Jesus? Are you following? Then repent of your sins this morning. Trust in Him. And be baptized. And join a church. I'm not saying you got to join this church. I'm saying find a faithful, Bible-believing church and join it. Be baptized as a sign of your identity with Christ. There's too much non-baptism going on these days. Thinking, you know, well, I prayed and trusted Him in my house like 50 years ago, but I've never been baptized. Baptism is a sign of union with Christ. It's a sign that you are one of His followers. So be baptized. Maybe some of you are realizing, well, I I thought I was a Christian, but I, I don't think I am. I'm telling you what I thought. I mean, when I went forward at six, and but I've been living for 20 years totally against that. I've never even thought about that. Then I would say, what happened back there is you got wet in some water by a person who shouldn't have been baptizing you, but now you can become a follower of Christ and be baptized. And baptism is not going to wash away your sin. It's a sign of unity and union with Christ. So Jesus came, the Son of God appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. And this is something that He has achieved and offers to you this morning, to every one of us. For believers, most of us in this room are believers. Most of us have experienced the destruction of the devil in our lives. We've been freed from His power. We've been freed from the guilt of our sins by the blood of Christ. And therefore, we can leave extremely happy and know that for the rest of our lives, Satan will not, in the language of 1 John 5.18, touch us. That doesn't mean he can't affect us. That doesn't mean he can't tempt us. But he has no claim. In fact, God may permit him to kill you as a Christian for your everlasting joy. But if you're not a Christian, all I can do is hold him out to you this morning and with all my heart plead with you to come to him and receive him. Escape from this slavery. There's only we're all slaves. We are all slaves. There's no third option. We are either slaves of Christ or we're slaves of the devil, and I invite you to pick a new master. That other master beats you down. He will beat you down. And he will make it all the while thinking that right around the corner he's really going to give you the good stuff. He's really going to... It's just like, you just got to keep at it. got to keep doing it. And he will bring you down to your grave believing that lie. But if you will recognize, hmm, that Jesus looks like a good master. That Jesus looks like somebody that will take me and help me. That Jesus looks like someone who will save me from the guilt of my sins and who will free me now to live a new life. That He won't just do something in heaven like that affects them, but He'll actually do something now and change my relationship to my sin and struggles. He will actually make me into a new person. And I invite you to become a new person today. I invite you to become a Christian to embrace Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these precious people. Thank you so much for these brothers and sisters whom I love with all my heart. Thank you for so much for these other visitors who are with us today whom I desire your greatest blessing and good to be upon them. Anything that I've said that has been taken as harsh or rude or unbiblical, I pray that you would blot that out. Anything that was faithful and true and helpful and in accordance with your word, I pray that you would take, own, and bless to their everlasting good. Lord, we pray that you would treat us far better. You have. How kind you are. You are You are the reason that we are here this morning. You are the kindest of all the kind. Goodness and love is embodied in who you are.
because you not you didn't come for the good. You came for those who hated you, such as your great love for us, that you would come not for a world that was eager to receive you, not for a world that was ready to take you in, but for a world that was ready to nail you to a cross and shout, Cursed be you. You did that for us. Thank you for invading this world. Thank you for being present right now in this world, freeing people from the works of the devil, freeing people from the guilt of their sins, freeing people from all the power that sin presently works in their lives. Thank you for being committed to that until one day when you return again and all those, all the sin that has ever racked this world and all the people who have ever committed it unrepentingly will be punished. And all those who have embraced you as their only hope will be welcomed into the kingdom where there will be no more death, no more sorrows, for the former things have all passed away and behold, all things have become new. We pray even now that you would hasten that great day and in the meantime, while you're hastening that day, that you would have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.